In the year 1800, over 90% of Americans lived on farms. Any guesses as to what that number is today? Just 1%. Time and again in American life, technology has made room for new, better things, ease human burdens and free up RAM. Think only of dishwashers and vacuum cleaners, of microwaves and airplanes. Surely, in modern times, the rise of the chip, the internet, has reduced by near unfathomable levels the hefty amount of physical searching and manual labor once required just to get by. My forebears worked the farm. Maybe your forebears undertook the family blacksmith business. But we lucky few, we get to apply creativity, discover, and take on work that aligns with our skills and passions. Of course, today, Silicon Valley represents this new frontier, perhaps better than any place else in the world. And it's there that Carolyn Chen, a sociologist and professor of ethnic studies at UC Berkeley, where she also co-directs the Berkeley Center for the Study of Religion, has discovered something compelling. In her new book, Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley, Princeton Press, 2022, Professor Chen tells the story of a young engineer in Boston who gets a job on a Friday afternoon and is expected to show up at his office in the Bay Area on Monday morning at 8 a.m. And countless other stories. For example, a single mother who, by working more hours, could enfold her three children into daycare supports, into a state-of-the-art company cafeteria, even taking part in Soul Cycle, making her own time with her kids that much richer. Time after time, a Silicon Valley job provided what religion previously provided to a Georgia Tech college student or an Ohio megachurch volunteer. From company yoga studios to meditation apps, from cafeterias to enriching professional development opportunities, young, mobile, high-tech workers, allured by the perks, will often work 60, 70, even 80-hour weeks. If the company's changing the world, why go to church? And for millennials and Gen Z in particular, this trend toward no religion at all or remaining agnostic when the religion surveyors come around is increasingly popular. In places like Washington, New York, Los Angeles, and Silicon Valley, that's very often because work crowds out faith, even for journalists. But Trey Stevens, a venture capitalist and partner at Founders Fund, where he invests across multiple sectors and stages, argues that this story is actually more complex. Trey is a thoughtful evangelical Christian who in recent years has successfully turned a number of heads amongst Silicon Valley venture capital guys, often just by asking questions about the enduring things, which he argues haven't disappeared just because we're working harder than ever. Trey grew up in rural Ohio. He went to Georgetown University and later taught there. He worked for then-Congressman Rob Portman and later in the political affairs office at the embassy in Afghanistan. After building computational linguist enterprise solutions in the U.S. intel community, Trey moved to Silicon Valley, much like others profiled in Carolyn's book. He worked as an early employee at Palantir Technologies, where he led teams focused on growth, particularly in the intel and defense space. He later co-founded and is today executive chairman of Anduril Industries, a defense technology company focused on autonomous systems in theaters such as Ukraine. And he also co-founded Soul, a next-generation wearable e-reader. Now, one disclaimer, Trey is not only the first venture capitalist we've hosted at Faith Angle, he's also the first speaker whose microphone flopped on us. So for his remarks, you'll need to lean in and listen. And it gets better about halfway through, but I hope you'll stay with him. His recent piece on pursuing good quests, which is linked in the show notes, has taken off amongst those in the venture and startup worlds. And like Carolyn, Trey has something honest to say to all of us about the through lines 
of work, vocation, and faithfulness. So two short talks, which were given live just a few weeks ago to a group of 18 journalists working at outlets primarily west of the Mississippi. First, Carolyn on how work in Silicon Valley has come to take the place that religion once held, and then Trey on why that is and what we can do about it. Enjoy the conversation. It's really a pleasure and honor for me to be here talking to all of you. When we teach our classes, so I'm a sociologist, and when we teach our, teach our methods class in sociology, we always ask this question to our students, is sociology just slow journalism? And, uh, you know, and, and, and when I've worked with journalists, I'm like, I, I'm amazed by the pace of which you, you all write and have to produce because we're literally about 100 times slower than you and coming out with information so much slower than you. Anyways, pleasure to be here. So as Josh mentioned, my book is called Work, Pray, Code. I still have to look at the title because I always get the three words mixed up, right? So Work, Pray, Code, When Work Becomes Religion in Silicon Valley. And my basic argument is that work is replacing religion in Silicon Valley. But this book is not just about Silicon Valley. Um, I hope that this will become, you know, what I'm talking about will help you also think about the place of work and religion, that this argument is generalizable. And I say to what I call knowledge industry hubs. So these are places like, not just like Silicon Valley, but Seattle, New York, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., Cambridge, these places that have really, where you see a high concentration of knowledge industry workers, these cities that really have grown in, I would say, the last 50 years and have experienced the largest population growth in the last 50 years as well. So let me first start off with how I got into studying Silicon Valley as a sociologist of religion. Like most scholars of religion, I study religious things, people, places that identify with a formal religious tradition, right? But I became interested, I got into this topic because I started, as many of you know, have noticed, that the fastest growing religious group is actually religious nuns, N-O-N-E-S, right? So the people who don't affiliate with any religious tradition at all. And you see that growth the fastest among in these sort of coastal metropolitan areas. And so I was really curious about, well, as a sociologist of religion, how do I study religion and spirituality among this group? So I first started this project by looking at uh, yoga, and I was studying yoga, yoga practitioners, and I was conducting ethnography in yoga studios. I interviewed yoga practitioners and I asked them why they practice yoga, how they practice yoga, when they practice yoga. And they would tell me, well, I like to practice yoga after a long day of work and it helps me to distress, it helps me to stretch, it helps me to you know, calm myself down and it makes me a better attorney, teacher, programmer, lawyer, Etc. You could fill in the blank with whatever profession they were talking about. And it became clear to me as I was talking to them, they would tell me about how they were willing to suffer headaches, broken relationships, anxiety attacks, depression, bodily ailments, all because of work. Now, as a sociologist of religion, I'm thinking, well, what is sacred here then? Because I had gone in thinking, well, yoga as this quasi-religious slash secular 
practice, right, that has religious origins, maybe this is what's secular. This is, but in fact, if you, you know, the more that I would spend time with these people, it was clear to me that they were surrendering, submitting, and sacrificing their lives to their work. And so it occurred to me, well, look, I need, I'm looking in the wrong place. You know, I need to, if I define what is religious by what is secular, I mean, sorry, by what is sacred, then I think I need to start looking at the workplace. So fast forward, it was a random occurrence that my husband and I got fellowships at Stanford. So we moved to Palo Alto for the year. And there I was in Silicon Valley, the belly of the beast of 21st century capitalism, and wanting to study workplaces and spirituality. So when I got there, I'm an ethnographer, and I uh, immerse myself in the field, probably very similar to what you all do as journalists, except I spend a lot years, <laughs> a lot more time there. And as I was interviewing tech workers, I noticed a really interesting pattern when it came to religion. And because, you know, most people who are studying Silicon Valley aren't looking at religion and spirituality, right? I, I came in with the eye of a, as, as, of a religion scholar. I noticed, well, first of all, let me just back up here, is that no one from Silicon Valley is really from Silicon Valley. Everyone moves there from somewhere else. So in my book, I call people, folks from Silicon Valley, tech migrants. And I, in my former books, I studied immigration and religion. And one thing that I noticed is that people change their religion when they immigrate often. Religion changes in some way. And so what I noticed among what I call tech migrants, tech workers, is that they often lost their religion after they moved to Silicon Valley and started working in tech companies. And most of these people were young men who often came from, I mean, they're coming right from places like China and Korea and Germany, but the majority of them are coming from places like Georgia, Oklahoma, upstate New York, these places that are more, much more religious than the Bay Area. And an example of one of the people I talk about in my book is someone that I call John Ashton. John Ashton came from Georgia, grew up in the church, was always really active in his church youth group. He became the president of his Christian fraternity at Georgia Tech, you know, was really active, played in the church band when he worked in Atlanta. But then when he started working in Silicon Valley, he left the church, he lost his faith. And it wasn't because it was some kind of like crisis in faith. And I think that that's one of the things that you, know, you need to understand is that I think for very few people, it's about a crisis of faith. Rather, it was just that it slowly kind of faded away because it wasn't important to him anymore. The institution of religion wasn't important to him anymore. And part of that was because he worked so much. He worked really long hours, and he told me he just didn't have time to go to church any, anymore. But as I started talking to him more and more, I realized actually that, wait, something else was going on. His startup had replaced his church in all the ways, all the ways that the, what his religion had at one time provided for him. It was now his tech company that was doing that. So it provided him with a strong sense of identity. And, you know, as you know, in Silicon Valley, people always have like, they're wearing their sweatshirt or their t-shirt or it's like on their, you know, water bottle, right? 
And it's like, this is where I'm from. And people go by the names of people. Some people go by the names of their companies. Like that's, that's their sense of identity. It provided a really strong sense of belonging. It provided a really strong sense of purpose for him. So it wasn't that it was to, his purpose in life wasn't, was now to transform the world, you know, one user at a time. He even <laughs> described to me the mission that he now had. He used it using this Christian missionary language. And he said to me, he kept on saying to me, you know, we just have this burden to come up with this thing that's going to change the world. You know, he kept on saying that. We just have this burden to come up with this thing to change the world. It also required faith in the way that religion does. The most, probably the most common phrase mantra that I heard over and over again in Silicon Valley is, well, you got to drink the Kool-Aid, you know? And laced in there is obviously this this element of this consciousness that, you know, there is like, we need to give something up to follow. <laughs> you know, that the, there is this element of faith there, right? Because only one out of startups succeed. I have to say, I, I wasn't sure if people got the, uh, the Jonestown um, metaphor <laughs> when they used that, but it was, you know, really ironic there, right? The other thing is that the companies provided this, so they provide meaning, purpose, belonging, identity, and also spiritual practices. Many people that I interviewed, they learned meditation and mindfulness and also Buddhism and secular Buddhist practices and ideas through their companies. So this led me to this observation that the main argument of my book, that work was replacing religion in Silicon Valley. And what I mean by this is, you know, if I take this apart in two ways, is that first, that tech workers are looking to work for identity, meaning, belonging, and purpose. These are needs that Americans once fulfilled through their religious and civic institutions. And then the second part of this is that companies are increasingly taking on pastoral roles where they are using spirituality and spiritual practices to grow the value of the human capital of their employees. And companies know that they benefit when employees align the deepest parts of themselves with their work. So I saw this in, for instance, companies offering meditation and mindfulness classes. And of course, this isn't just Silicon Valley anymore, right? This is almost so many organizations. Companies were offering spiritual retreats like a you know, five-day silent retreat as a wellness benefit. Companies hired spiritual leaders like uh, Deepak Chopra to come in and give inspirational talks. Most senior leaders in Silicon Valley have executive coaches, and I spent time with executive coaches. I went to their training sessions, and they're deeply, deeply spiritual and have a lot of um, particularly draw, drawing a lot from Asian religions, <laughs> particularly Buddhism. When I talk to HR managers and uh, professionals, and I asked them to describe their work and what they were doing, their companies, they would use words like, I'm nurturing the souls of the employees at, you know, fill in the blank, uh, you know, Facebook, Google, et cetera, or I'm bringing wholeness to the workplace. So they saw themselves also as feeding and nurturing the spirituality of their workers. One executive that I interviewed told me 
workplace, he, he said this to me, the workplace is the hotbed of spirituality in Silicon Valley. Another founder and CEO of a startup told me that he was the head pastor of his company. Um, so they really, so the people that I interviewed really saw spirituality as part of the company culture and a strategic way to increase the bottom line. Now, I want to back up here and I want to say that, you know, we often think of Silicon Valley as sort of this weird outlier, right? But in my book, I want to argue that Silicon Valley, that this is not just a Silicon Valley thing, work, replacing religion, but rather a generalizable pattern that we, that really I think that we see among American professionals, especially in knowledge industry hubs. I don't think we see it to such the extreme in other places, but Silicon Valley is a great experiment because it's so extreme that it helps us see these patterns that we're seeing kind of reflections of in other parts of the countries. For instance, most Fortune 500 companies have adopted the basic elements of religious organizations. They have a mission, values, an origin myth, and even a charismatic founder. If you flip through any issue of Harvard Business Review, there is a lot of spirituality in this, you know, in this secular management magazine. I quote this one, you know, management guru who wrote an article in Harvard Business Review where he says, meaning is the new money. Essentially, this is, you know, good management means you need to provide meaning for your employees. We also see it in like the kind of slogans in corporate America, bring your whole self to work, right? And when they talk about your whole self, they're really also talking about your spirituality, bringing that spiritual element of yourself to work. Because when you bring your whole self to work, you give your whole self to work as well. Um, professionals today describe work using words like calling, mission, purpose and authenticity. These are words that Americans used to reserve for non-work spheres of life, right? Like your family, your faith community, your neighborhood. These institutions and spheres of life where you give your unconditional love and loyalty. So those words, those, that affect, that culture of work as being a sense of vocation, calling, mission, purpose, and using these words like authenticity to describe the workplace. This is something that we've, you know, a development that we've seen, I'd say, in the last 10 to 20 years in the United States, particularly among high-skilled professional workers. Even the way that we talk about in Silicon Valley, and I think this is just normal common parlance for most professionals now, is that you talk about joining a company. You think about that verb, joining, like what does that mean? We, we, join, we join faith communities, we join clubs, and now we also use that word joining to talk about working for a company as well. There's a lot, in, there's a lot of, there are a lot of assumptions embedded in that. So I argue that this pattern of work worship, it reflects this larger 45 year trend that we've seen in the United States and the shift in the meaning of work. And I call this the expansion of work and the contraction of religion. And what we've seen is that starting in the late 1970s, we've seen that educated workers, and here I just want to, 
I, I just want to say, I just want to point out that I'm really talking about high-skilled workers. I mean, work, we, we really have, we see this sort of bipolar movement in the experience of work for American workers, where you see high, for, for high-skilled workers, you're seeing that work is becoming more meaningful. In the last 45 years, work has become more meaningful, more fulfilling, and actually more profitable. Whereas for non-college educated workers, work has actually become less dignified, less stable, less secure, and actually they've, they've become lower paid. So we see this like really different experience of work. And I'm really talking about this, a small but significant minority of elite high-skilled workers. Okay, so let me back up here. Is it starting in the late 1970s? We see this really interesting pattern where educated workers, high-skilled workers, started working more hours. And it used to be the case in the United States where if you were less educated, you were working more hours. But we started to see this shift in the 1970s where high-skilled workers were working more and more hours. And there's a lot of explanations for this. There's large, you know, first you see the rise of global capitalism, also the rise of the knowledge economy. And for high-skilled workers, work became more demanding. And this is something that we hear a lot about, I think. But there's this other part of the story that we don't hear as much about, is that as it became more demanding, it also became more fulfilling. So that in order to compete in the global economy, American companies restructured work, demanding more hours, but also make, making it more fulfilling. They gave workers more autonomy. They flattened kind of authority structure. They offered things like profit sharing and stock options that they hadn't offered before. They invested in the professional development of workers, and they also paid them a lot more. So high-skilled work became more meaningful, more fulfilling, and more profitable. But for non-college educated workers, work became less secure, less stable, less meaningful, and less dignified. So that's what's happening in the world of work. Work is sort of expanding. It's taking more of your time, but it's also fulfilling more parts of yourself as well, if you're a high-skilled worker. Now, what's happening in the world of civil society and civic institutions? We see this pretty slow and steady, but large decline in civic religious and civic participation so that the non-work spheres of life that had originally provided identity, meaning, and belonging have now really contracted. And so this is where, you know, when we talk about religious participation at an all-time low right now, this is a long trend, really, that we see for the last 50 years that slowly, you know, that slowly was like declining and declining. And what I argue is that these two things are related here. It's basically the sphere of work and institutions of work are taking over, if have now supplanted what Americans used to look for in their faith and civic institutions. So in the 1950s and the 1960s, the typical white-collar worker worked 40 hours a week and then built a really fulfilling and meaningful, well, built a life outside of work, okay? And this was in their rotary clubs, their faith communities, their softball leagues, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, things have changed dramatically since then. They didn't have email then, they didn't have Slack then. You know, work was also physically bounded, right? But the other thing that has changed is that in the 1950s and 60s, 
that you basically needed to belong to a civic institution in order to be somebody. You know, your religion, your faith really gave you a social identity, right? And today, if you're in Silicon Valley, your work gives you that social identity. So there's this really big sh this shift here. So that today, when I was conducting my interviews in Silicon Valley, and I asked tech workers, well, where do you find community outside of work? And they would all say to me again and again, like, oh, that's a really big challenge here in Silicon Valley, finding community outside of work, you know. And so what I argue in my work, in my book, is that really, you know, we're so used to talking about work as being extractive. And we talk about work versus life, right? We have this work-life balance. And I think that this is a really retrograde way of thinking about the way that work operates in our lives today. And I argue that work actually has an attractive force, at least in Silicon Valley, over people. It's not, yes, it does extract, but, it, but if we started to think of work as having extract, as, as an attractive force, we might think about it differently. Like people would say to me over and over, there's no such thing as work life. It's all one big life. But from my observation as an outsider, no, it wasn't one big life. It was one big work of which life fit in. So I argue that companies are meaning-making institutions that offer the gospel of fulfillment and divine purpose in a capitalist cosmos. So I conclude in my book by talking about Silicon Valley as a tectopia. And a tectopia is an upgraded social operating system where work is the highest form of fulfillment. And whenever I talk about Silicon Valley, you know, people say, well, what's wrong with this? You know, what's not to like about this? People are living productive and meaningful lives and making a lot of money and eating good food and exercising. You know, like what, what's not to like about this? And what I argue is that, so I talk about, you know, in a techtopia, work is like this giant, huge, powerful magnet. And that is attracting, and so, Sorry, let me back up. Say you have this table, okay? And each of the different social institutions are different sized magnets that you have here on the table. And then you pour a bucket full of metal filings onto this table. Well, the, well, the filings are going to immediately, they're gonna naturally be attracted to the lar largest and most powerful magnet on the table. And what's happened is that big powerful magnet has become work. In, in a place like Silicon Valley. And that faith communities, families, arts organizations, other civic institutions have grown smaller and weaker in comparison. And they're like these small magnets that are just competing, right? If these metal filings are the, represent the time, energy, and devotion of a community. And so what, has, what ends up happening is that these smaller institutions, weaker institutions, in order to survive, in order to compete for the time and energy and devotion of a community, they basically have to service the big magnet, which is the workplace, which is what I observed, for instance. And I saw this among religious institutions. For instance, I interviewed a Buddhist priest that I call Gil Goldman in my book. And he told me that people were no longer coming to the morning sittings or the morning meditations at his temple anymore because people were so busy working. 
So he got this great idea that he was going to bring meditation to the workplace. And so he decided he would bring meditation to the workplace. But in the process of bringing meditation to the workplace, he had to take out the ethical teachings. He had to shorten, you know, he had to shorten the teachings and he basically had to repackage meditation into a productivity practice, which is not just his story, but the story that I've of so many other meditation and mindfulness, yoga instructors, Dharma teachers, you know, Buddhist teachers that I interviewed is that basically I can't make a living by just teaching at meditation centers and yoga studios anymore. I have to basically what I call get Google money. And then in the process of doing that, you transform the religious practice. I talked to faith leaders. I talked to, for instance, one Protestant pastor who told me, you know, back in the day, 30 years ago, you know, my typical congregant would come, would attend church once a week and then stay for Sunday school. And now he says that the typical congregant comes maybe once a month and just for Sunday service. And then he said to me, as a church, we rely a lot on volunteers. And so now we are facing this volunteer challenge. So the problem with Techtopia is that it monopolizes, the workplace monopolizes the time, energy, and devotion of a community. And it fulfills so much of people's needs, that people tend to disinvest and disengage in public and civic life. So public officials told me it's really hard to engage tech workers and that they're politically disengaged. You know, people were telling me, faith leaders, similarly, you know, it's really hard to get people to come to church or to participate in our faith institutions. And so what happens, you know, when I talk about techtopia, what I'm really describing here is an ecosystem. It's a social ecosystem where people direct their devotion to work because that's where all the material, social, and spiritual benefits of a community are concentrated, right? So it's by default that you will worship work simply because this is how the system is structured. I see I'm running out of time, so I'll just really quickly wrap up here. I mean, you know, one of the things that I'm trying to grapple with is this in the book and I try to challenge my readers with is how do we not worship work? You know, how do we, how do we, how do we create an alternative way of working and how do, we, how do we rethink the way that we work? And my answer is, which I really hand off to other people, but the hint of it is we have to rethink our social institutions and we need to really build up our civic institutions. We need to build up these other alternative institutions where we can find fulfillment and purpose and meaning. So that's my book in a nutshell. I just want to also name two things just because I am also the executive director. My other hat that I wear is I'm the executive director of the Asian Pacific American Religions Research Initiative. And since I'm with a room full of journalists, I want to just talk up, you know, encourage you all to pay more attention to Asian American religions. I'll speak really briefly just about Asian Americans' uh, religion and politics. You know, I, I was talking about this briefly with some of the folks at breakfast this morning, but uh, whenever I'm looking, whenever I read about race and religion and politics in the newspaper, I feel like it's all about white Christian nationalism. And I feel like there's some other really interesting stories out there, particularly reg regarding Asian American Christianity that are being overlooked. I think that some of the most fascinating shifts in American Christianity actually have to do with the growing Asian and Latino population. 
25% of American Christians are people of color. Among Gen Z, that number is 50%. And this is a group whose politics, whose education and demographics look very, very different from white evangelical Christianity. White evangelical Christianity, the numbers actually have been declining, um, and it's a group that is actually not growing. And so I think that, anyways, this is just to encourage you to all look at this this particular group, because I think that this is really going to be the future of American Protestantism. And in many ways, their political behavior looks a lot more like black Protestants. But what's different with them, uh, with particularly Asian Americans versus black Protestants, is that black Protestants have a history of their own black institutions. And so the majority of black Christians actually worship in black, uh, black churches. And that's not the case with Asian Americans. And so that we see that in many of these organizations, for instance, the National Association of Evangelicals, that uh, Asian Americans are integrated and have risen to leadership positions there. The provost of a place like Wheaton College is Asian American. So I just want to put this out there to pique your interest, and I'd be happy to talk more about it. Thank you, Carol. Yeah. That's great. Appreciate that. In the trenches. Yeah, I, I feel like you're all getting a raw deal transitioning from a brilliant sociologist to uh, a venture capitalist. I think there's, there's certainly a lot of, of meat here and things that I've seen a lot of in my 10 years in venture capital. Prior to being at Founders Fund, I spent six years at a tech company called Palantir, that's now a publicly traded software company. So this has represented the majority of my professional life, with the exception of three years that I spent working in the intelligence community in D.C., which was a vastly different experience, uh, the, the tech part of this. I, I think, like, the kind of going back to your early point about the engineer, I'm assuming, from Georgia that came to Silicon Valley and lost his faith over time, you know, I grew up in a evangelical Protestant tradition in rural Ohio, and I think that there's something about the way that those tradition, that I certainly experienced that tradition, that I can understand how people would lose their faith mm -hmm. when they come into the kind of mm -hmm. coastal mm -hmm. knowledge worker economy. And, and I'll just tell this as a personal anecdote, kind of yeah. you can read from there. Growing up, there was this idea that there was your religious life and then there was maybe your personal life, and then your professional life was the way that you provided for your family. So your nine to five was just, I'm working because I have to work, and if I bring my faith into my work, I'm going to bring it in in the context of evangelizing. Like I'm witnessing, uh, preaching the gospel to people around me, maybe inviting them to church, um, but there was certainly no, no overlap between my professional life and you know any sort of spiritual persuasion or mission that was attached to that other than evangelism. And so I think when a lot of people transition out of that into the knowledge worker economy, it becomes very clear that evangelizing is going to be more difficult than they might have imagined. Maybe they weren't prepared from an apologetics perspective to approach that. And so it's easy to slot something else into that meaning and purpose box. The, the place where I think this kind of has like a very different vibe in Silicon Valley is that I think people in the tech economy want that meaning. That's mm -hmm. like a part of their compensation. 
is is the meaning that comes along with it. Mm-hmm. And I think actually this is the historical Christian perspective of work as well. You know, all work is sacred in some way. Collaboration with God towards redemption for humanity is part of our call as humans. And, and so I think a subtle reframe around that has a really powerful impact to bringing people into their faith mm-hmm. in, in a more prepared way. And you see that coming out in probably most notably the Gotham Fellowship out mm-hmm. of Redeemer Presbyterian in New York mm-hmm. City, where uh, the whole purpose of the program, which I've never gone through in New York, I've gone through the curriculum independently, is teaching people about the sacred nature of their vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not all about evangelism. It's about what is it, how is it that what you're doing is contributing to a positive spiritual impact on the world. And that reframing makes it much easier for Christians and people of other faiths that are coming into these communities to retain their faith uh, because they actually believe that it matters. That, you know, if they're uh, building a social network, you know, what is what is it that you're doing that has a redemptive impact on humanity? Or if you're building uh, biotech, what is it that you're doing that is part of a redemptive nature of humanity? And I think that is becoming more common now, but it's still very nascent in the way that people are thinking about this. I think Gotham Fellowship is probably only 10, 12 years old. It's, it's not uh, not a very uh, old phenomenon. And that faith and work program of study is exploding in the coastal uh, communities. And you would never work that hard to find this in like every major church and knowledge worker kind of focused on these faith and work programs. Um, so that's the first thing I would say, uh, is that there is a, a view of this where the mission can be aligned in, in a way that is more uh, aligned with spirituality, with uh, religious spirituality. Um, you know, the, the kind of the question around uh, spiritual ec- ecumenicalism and mindfulness and meditation retreats, spiritual retreats, executive coaches, yoga, I, I feel like that was definitely very, very popular. Um, in the five to 10 year window ago range, it's starting to collapse a little bit and you're starting to see a lot of the air being sucked out of the room. Probably the organization that most exemplified this in the tech community is called the Effective Altruist Movement, which maybe you're probably familiar with. It was a powerful social movement, I would say, within tech, especially like executive tech leadership uh, for, for a while. It is commonly ridiculed today in Silicon Valley at, at, due to its association with uh, SPF, as an example, San Diego Free. Um, there have been profiles that have been written up on the leadership of the effective agricultures and movement that have ca- kind of called them out in their corruption and overall silliness, quote that. Um, and, uh, and so I think that there's, there's an increasing skepticism. Um, and what I think the, like, the important tie back to this that I often see when I'm talking to um, other founders in, in the tech community is that there, there's a lot of ways you can get kind of surface mindfulness. And this goes to your, your point about the Buddhist monk going in and talking to Google. But there's no ethical teaching that goes along with Absolutely, that. Absolutely, yeah. And so I think that the, there are a lot of these founders that they'll dip into this to you know find some peace or uh, meaning for their life. And then they realize that these movements are just telling them things that they want to hear. It's like culture re- cultural reinforcement of individuality and of your own worthiness, but there's no truth. There's no like ethical teaching that underlies it. 
Uh, and so it still feels very empty. So people will go through these cycles of like, I'm gonna try the whole like, you know, Buddhist yoga thing. Uh, it doesn't really work, I still feel really empty. Uh, on the switch and they'll still feel really empty. And then eventually they circle back and they're like, okay, tell me more about this Christianity thing. Now I'm like really at my wit's end and, and want to kind of better understand this. And so I think the, the most surprising thing to me in the time, the 15 years that I've spent in the tech uh, world is that the common assumption is that there's a great deal of hostility towards organized religion. I've actually found that there's a great deal of curiosity about people who have kept organized religion as part of their life once they've entered this, this sector. Um, and so, you know, I go through hundreds of pitch meetings every year. At least once a week, someone will pull me aside coming in or out of the pitch meeting and say like, I read this thing that you wrote about Christianity and your faith, and can we like circle up at some later date and talk about this because I'm really like struggling with this. And so I think it's less hostility in my experience and it's been more, you know, I'm very curious to understand how someone could be in this world and still also have, have a strong uh, religious background. And that's been a real surprise for me. Another aspect of this, aside from work replacing mm -hmm. people's religion, is also that their work is effectively replacing religion in some ways, as in like the product that they're building is also <laughs> replacing religion in some ways. I'll give you one very clear example that aligns with the community piece of this and the loss of these other institutions. Um, online dating. There used to be this kind of mechanism in society for joining these other clubs and communities, maybe going to your churches, whatever it might be. You could invent all sorts of reasons for why you did that uh, as a single person. I think all of us in the room would probably admit that many of those single people were doing it because they were single people. And there was an opportunity to meet other single people that might eventually end up being your, your partner. Today, online dating has basically made those spaces like empty. And everyone's just sitting, swiping right. If you look at the way that like pairings happened over the course of history, and I'm not a sociologist, so others in this room are more qualified to discuss this than I am, but you would have small local communities. And so John would pair off with Sally and Martha would pair off with Sam, whatever. And it just kind of like worked its way through because people had context. They interacted with this person, they knew their family, they thought they were charming, they thought they were smart, they thought they were funny, you know, whatever it might be. And that's kind of how, how these things have worked over the course of history. Today, it's getting boiled down to a completely different level that's just whatever you can put on your profile that people can consume in two seconds to decide whether or not they think you're someone that they should meet. And what we've seen as a result of that is kind of like a Casanova syndrome where I don't know the exact percentages. There have been studies that you guys could go and pull the research on, but it's something like 60% of men are single, are not seeing anyone and something like 30% of women in their 20s say the same thing. And so there's this massive discrepancy where there's a bunch of single men who have no dating prospects that haven't you know, been intimately sexually involved in a long time and a much smaller number of women. Definitionally, this would seem to suggest that there are some men that have a lot of partners and then there's this massive glut of men who have none. And we look at a lot of the societal phenomena that are happening around the incel community and how that's turning into violence and all sorts of strange behaviors. You know, 
I think this has a, a massive impact on our ability as a society to sustain and thrive. And so, you know, even the things that people are building are having potentially very negative impacts on, on society in ways that might have originally been unexpected. So I think that, you know, there's, there's definitely a tendency for people to justify whatever it is that they're working in ways that are really just desperation and search for being filled by something, and they, they don't really know what to do with it. So this is, uh, we were talking before about an essay that I wrote a few months back, six months back maybe, called Choose Good Quests. It's really kind of a very under the, under the covers religious treatise uh, without any actual religion, kind of expressing to people that, you know, as you go out and think about what it is that you're doing in your day to day, you should think about it as a quest. There's some ultimate purpose, there's something that you're working towards, um, and those quests can be good, those quests can be bad, or they can be side quests. They can be things that are like very minor that maybe don't really matter and that are a distraction from whatever the main quest it is that you're on. The call that I made in the essay uh, was that people should evaluate the goodness of their quest. And I realized about two months later after having a bunch of people engage with me in random places about this essay is that our human nature is that we always assume that our quest is good. It doesn't really matter what your quest is. Everyone kind of finds a way to shoehorn their quest into a good thing. I actually had a guy at a dinner tell me that he was working on an NFT project and he was very convinced that this was the goodest quest that he could be on. And I just kind of scratched my head and I'm like, wow, this is not where I thought this essay was gonna go. Um, <laughs> And so the challenge that I, that I offer to people now when, we did, when I discuss the Good Quest framework is let's think about all the ways in which your quest is not good. And let's like use that as a starting point. And I, that, I think you reach a lot more interesting conversations by challenging people to be more introspective about places where they are, they are not living up to the value of their time and effort to producing something that matters. For, for humanity, um, and those conversations often have a tendency to cycle back to a more spiritual context, because once people realize that there's a ton of emptiness in their professional pursuits, that leads to them searching for like, okay, then what is my meaning? What is it that I care about? What is it that I'm passionate about? And how can I redirect those energies into something more productive? So I do completely agree that the whole work thing in Silicon Valley is rooted around meaning, it's rooted around mission and there's just a lot of confusion i think in the way that people think about those because they've been psychologically trained to just believe that it is as good a quest as any organized religion has ever been regardless of what it is faith angle connects leading journalists with leading scholars and practitioners thanks for listening